Hello everybody, this is Clint Locklear with Trapping Radio and we're going to have a fast paced uh, if you're interested in this type of thing where we're going to talk about which is going to be the lessons that I learned while road trapping in Louisiana and Mississippi. A lot of people go down to Mississippi. There's a lot of good reasons to go down to Mississippi and Louisiana. There's a lot of fur, but if you're not from there, it is a different world, guys. So before we get to that, as normal, I'd like to uh, thank the sponsors, which is Wildlife Control Supplies, Oki Cable and Trap, which I just, me and Travis, just unloaded. I'll be putting a video up here in a couple of days showing it. Uh, 3,000 pounds of bobcat meat from Jeb. So when I say that I only deal with people I trust, if I'm putting in my lure, guys, that means I trust it. So I got 3,000 pounds that about killed me and Travis to unload it and move it all in the shop. Now we're going to have to figure out how we're going to uh, grind all that up and uh, preserve it at the right stages and all that type stuff. So now it's turned into a logistical chess game to be able to handle that much meat. But we'll, we'll figure that out. But Jeb's a good guy and uh, he sent what he did and it's it's exactly what he said it was going to be. So uh, he's he's also a good sponsor that you can check out at Oki Cable and Trap. F&T uh, Fur Harvesters up in Michigan. Uh, you know, that's where when you see me using all the drags, they've got the saber tooth. So when you see me using the, the dog proofs that I use, it's the FB1s and the FB2s. Pretty much anything you'd want in trapping for hounds or for calling, they got you covered. And then the last sponsor is Dunlap Lures, which is a good friend of mine, Jeff Dunlap. Now, he just got back from Alaska. And I got to talk with him yesterday. And I've been following him a little bit on Instagram and Facebook and stuff. And... I was almost thinking that I was going to get a phone call and go put my place on the market. And uh, didn't happen. Thought it would. But, you know, glad to have him back. Glad a polar bear didn't eat him or something like that. And uh, it's just always fun because uh, me and Jeff are pretty close as far as we were. Uh, it's kind of weird how grown men are sometimes, but we're like little kids when the walking deads are on or when uh the vikings was on or black sails and stuff like that that's you know kind of the we just make little snide remarks back and forth and have a good time so me and jeff's good friends glad to have him back he makes really good lure uh really good baits and if you're looking for some i'm gonna tell you mine's better but jeff's really good so if, if i was gonna rank all the lures in the country i'd be one he'd be two and i'm not sure that's really true because he is really takes his profession seriously so uh that's the sponsors and they they help do the show i wish i had a cool thing to say like meat trapper does where he goes meat trapper powered by don't have that so i just say i think you know when you see the sponsors let them know that you appreciate it uh the other thing i want to say before we get started in this uh shotgun blast of information that's getting ready to happen is uh the fur brigade guys if you buy stuff, uh, you, you, you join the Fur Brigade, which is at trfurbrigade.com. It's $39 a year. You get 10% of all my stuff. Uh, you get 10% off of all funky cable and trap stuff. You, you get different parts from Southern Snares, uh, chips, uh, meat trapper stuff. Uh, it depends on what it is as far as what you get or free shipping or sometimes it, you just have to go and look. 
But if you buy supplies and you trap regularly, you can literally put money in your pocket with a fur brigade. Plus we have two videos that it would cost you $70 to buy and uh, some starting of the reading of the mindset of a professional, which I'm getting ready to do a couple more chapters on that, which is an audio if you've never, well, no one's ever heard the whole book, but as far as you might've read it. And uh, just, it's really easy to do. It's uh, every year it's $39 and you always get the discount. So think about the Trapping Radio Fur Brigade if you want to save money, which most of us do because trappers like to be cheap. That's just in our nature. So, and that's not a bad thing at all. So tonight's show, uh, thinking about what I wanted to do the show on, raining today, and uh, me and Travis, I think we did, I think it was, let's see, six five, 11 gallons of the hammer today so uh since we moved this is kind of funny since we moved from the house next door and we're in the wood building in the garage it's right next to the house now when we do something like that as cindy 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 uh steps outside she's like oh my goodness we can't hide it from her when we're this close to the house so it if uh just one of those things. It's the, the joys of being a stink maker, I guess you could say. So, but that's what we were doing. It was raining. And then the rain was is just somehow something in the back of my mind clicked of, of being down in Louisiana with some of the flooding and stuff that I saw down there. And it made me think, well, that would be kind of an interesting uh, show to do. Right before we get to that, guys, uh, if you're, depending on where you're at in the country, now if you're far up north and you're still getting snow, this may not matter, but if you're a little farther south, guys, right now is the time to go out and run some trot lines or limb lines for catfish. It really is. I mean, that's when you get some monsters. I, I tell you what, I'm getting ready to try. I don't know if it's going to work. I've got some really big rats. I'm talking rats. I'm not talking big mice. I'm talking rats. And they're so big, I couldn't get them through the grinder. And I think I've got six or seven of them. And originally, well, the reason I just stuck them in the freezer, originally my plan was when I go down to Florida and shark fish, I'm going to hook one of them big racks on some of them big shark hooks and throw it out there and just see what happens. That's kind of what I, I'm thinking about doing. But since you know, I'm like every other American and I want something now. I'm thinking that I'm gonna put out a trout line. We got really, well, not really cold, not compared to a lot of y'all, but it, the, the temperature dropped a lot. So probably next uh, weekend, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna, I've been playing with some stuff for catfish anyway. I'm gonna try that, but I'm probably gonna hook four or five of these great big old rats. When I say rats, I'm talking head to butts like 14, 15 inches long. So either I'm gonna catch a monster or I'm not gonna catch anything on there. But this time of year, the monsters are roaming in the big water. And they come up and they start moving up towards um, upstream and they're, they're behind the dams and everything. So I'm going to go out there and I'm going to really, really see if I can catch a monster with one of these big rats. Because that'd be kind of a interesting thing to know. Plus, the reason I'm telling you this is catfish is amazingly 
good. If you go to my YouTube channel, it's Wolfer Nation, and you go back through there, you will see a recipe where um, I think we're Cindy's cooking mackerel, and she talks about this really quick way that she does it with a butter sauce. Super fast, super easy with catfish fillets. And you will think that you're eating at a restaurant that you're gonna drop 30 to $50 a plate on. It's really that good, but the, the beautiful part of it is it's so simple. The other reason that I'm bringing up the fishing is because it's starting to warm up around the country. If you go out and you do a bunch of noodling, or uh, when I'm talking about noodling, it's kind of like um, jug fishing, but with uh, fishing with swimming pool noodles, or with trout lines, or with limb lines, or just going bank fishing, or boat fishing, or whatever. If you get into a bunch of fish, guys, for your own use, I mean, you can do it to sell, don't get me wrong, there's definitely a market for this, but for your own use, try making fish oil yourself. Now here's the thing about making fish oil yourself. I'm gonna go through this real quick, because it's not hard. All the stuff that you don't take and use off the fish, put it in a 55 gallon drum, or a 30 gallon drum, or five gallon bucket, depending on how much you have of the fish material. Just put it in there. Don't salt it. Don't add sodium benzoate to it. Don't do anything like that. I would probably put about 10% water just to get everything breaking down pretty good. And then the secret part of this, if you go to a, a uh, online store that, that does anything for wine or beer making, you will see these little tubes that allow air to come out of a keg or a you know wine if you're making wine in a big batch or something or like two dollars a piece really cheap drill down in your bucket or your your drum silicone it off put some glycerin in that thing and then you can just go set it out anywhere as long as you don't have to deal with bears and and uh, chain it to a tree so it's not next to your house or anything and it'll rot down and the the flies can't get through the little tube the air when it's blowing off can get out so it makes it super simple here's the reason i think you should do that really good fish oil there's some on the market i'm not saying there's not but really good fish oil is not easy to come by because a lot of times people that are making fish oil they're just trying to meet orders and they take it off where it's too soon catfish guys makes an awesome awesome oil I wouldn't be mixing that with trout. You can, don't get me wrong, you can. But just catfish, I would at least do one of just catfish. And let that thing eat till not this winter, but next winter. Just, just let it eat. Just let it go, put it in there, forget about it. When you come back to that, if you give it enough time, there's going to be a cream that's on top of all the stuff that's rotted down in there. When I'm talking about fish oil, there, there's all these definition problems you have. Catfish cream has got the consistency, if it's a little bit cool outside, like Crisco. And so if you have 30 gallons of material, you may only have six inches deep of this cream. That is an amazing product. And it's just a byproduct. So it didn't cost you a whole lot. You can make, you, uh, trout makes really good too. Sturgeon does different things, but the catfish has got a very unique odor 
and it's very coyote friendly. You can add this to, to different baits that you're making to give it a different flavor. Once you smell it and you let it eat that long and you just get the cream and you don't get the water stuff and everything in there, you will know that you've got something that you're excited about. You can take a, a, like a yogurt container or a Coke can, fill that thing up with it. If you're snaring, hang it up in a tree, knock some holes in it. Uh, animals will not have any trouble smelling. It doesn't smell like just rotten fish. That's the thing about this cream. It's not the rotten fish stuff. <clears throat> it, it almost has <clears throat> a sweet, um, pungent, almost like uh, scat smell, I guess, like from an animal or something. It, it's If you never really smelled the real good stuff, I mean, it's, and you can make it yourself, it's just hard to get. So that's the reason I was bringing up the fishing. It's because you get really good food. If you go to YouTube, you get a really good recipe. And if you make a batch of this every year, you're gonna have one hell of a product. You really will. And there's gonna be some very commercial baits out there that are well known that when you smell this, you're gonna go, aha. I know what part of that is. And you'll know what your success with the other ones of why it's done that well. So just, just throw one out there. Now, an, another thing, guys, if you live in Wisconsin, uh, the Deer Classic is this weekend. Starts today, I think, at 2, which by the time I play, I air this, it'll done started for today, but they'll be there tomorrow and partly Sunday, uh, Sunday from what I understand. Hilltop has got all my deer stuff up there. They got my hog stuff and my bear stuff and and uh, the camouflage corn and all that. They've got all of that up there. And if you're curious of what it is, that's a good place to go get a sniffer full and you can kind of see what it is that we're making because I haven't had it in any shows or anything like that. And if you're thinking about deer, you can go to Meat Trapper's YouTube channel and look what the video he did with the, the tactical nuke for the, the, the deer and that's the same thing we're seeing. Uh, a gentleman just did a video up in Pennsylvania, even in the snow, same thing he's seeing. So if you want to know what that is, go go by and let Hilltop know that, uh, that that you heard about it on the show and that you'd like to smell some of that stuff. And and if you uh, if you never met Alan from Hilltop, great, great, great guy. So just do that. So what are some of the lessons that I learned in Louisiana and Mississippi? Keep in mind, where I'm from, if you think the South is the South, you don't know that much about the South. Where I'm at is uh, Appalachian, very hilly. If you came to the Southern National last year, all the mountains and all that type of stuff, it's, it's Appalachian. It's not West Virginia Appalachians, but it's definitely Appalachian. You get over to North Carolina and South Carolina, it's totally different ground. Georgia's by itself. Uh, Florida is completely by itself. Alabama's got a mixture of me and say Georgia or maybe a little bit of Florida. And then you get into two states in the south which is Mississippi and Louisiana. Now Kentucky's more like Tennessee except on the very western side. Then you start getting into almost southern Missouri side. So the south is very diverse as far as the terrain. Mississippi and Louisiana, especially on the delta side is where I'm going to be talking about. There's a lot of fur. It's not that hard to really get permissions. They want you there. And even though the fur may not be as much as northern fur, there's so much of it, you can actually make more money on those trips than you can with a higher dollar fur up north. I did it for years. 
So if you're going down there, what are some things that uh, you should think about? Now, first off, what I would say is you need to, in a non-mocking way, try to sound and look like the locals. And you, you may think that that shouldn't matter, and maybe it shouldn't, but it does. If you're in probably the, the top part of Louisiana going into Mississippi, they're farmers. They dress like farmers. They talk like farmers. They trust other people that look and talk like farmers. And, you know, if you go in there and if you're all like Red, you know, the first time he went to Mississippi, he was smart enough to put his ponytails up under his hat and not showing the long hair and all that type stuff. And after a couple of years, it didn't matter because they trusted him. If you're all tattooed up and you're going to be meeting, you know, a landowner that could be 67 years old and he's not really thinking that the, the new generation's all that hot and you show up and you're looking all hipsterish, you're probably not going to get the response that you would if you looked like him. When Randy Smith goes up to Indiana and he's getting permissions, he always asks permissions with a John Deere hat and overalls on. Because half the people he meets has a John Deere hat on and overalls on. You know, so think about uh, not in the, the comic way of someone from the north thinking about the south, but when you get down and you kind of look around, you know, just try to look and sound a little bit like them. You know, don't try to have a Louisiana accent, for goodness sake, because that's going to come across terrible. But just, you know, try to, where you're, you don't look like you're from away is bad, if, if you follow what I'm saying. And you will be better received when you go there. And when they do make Yankee jokes, guys, just kind of laugh along with it. Even if your blood pressure gets up a little bit, they really don't mean anything by it. It's just kind of a way of busting your balls just to see how you're going to react type thing. And just roll with it. Because they're going to make them, I promise you that. I was considered a Yankee from Southern Tennessee. <laughs> I was called a Yankee all the time. You know what? To them, I guess I am. So um, just let it roll off your, uh, your back a little bit. Now, more of the technical type stuff. If you're going to go down there and get in big water, and I'm talking rivers down there, Mississippi, Louisiana, Sunflower, and Mississippi, I don't think... Um, I would not feel safe on the Mississippi River. I'm just putting that out there. If you're in the Mississippi River down in that part of the country, where it's like a mile wide, it's got extreme current, you got really big boats, uh, the flooding that you don't even know it's raining somewhere jumps everything up three or four feet, trees floating down through there sometimes. I mean, the Mississippi River guys can be dangerous, especially this far south. But on the other waters, what I'm considering bigger water, like if you look at the Sunflower River in Mississippi or some of the, the rivers that are in Louisiana that are not the Mississippi River, and down there, those, those can be really big. They feed into lakes. They do all kind of stuff like that. Most of the water I got on, which was probably about an hour south of I-20, when I was trapping there, those that water was anywhere from 
150 yards wide to 75 yards wide and they can be deep but there's also a lot of silt build up and stuff like that so just keep that in mind with your motors as far as your water pumps but on those big water guys not the Mississippi because I'm, I don't have any experience on that thing because I'm too big of a chicken there is a tremendous amount of fur I mean tremendous amount of fur if you're from anywhere north of there you don't have a concept of how much fur is on those rivers an example when I was doing the bounty part of the agreement that I had with them was everything was from riverbank to riverbank because there's two rivers separated the the parish that I was in not county sorry if you're from Louisiana the parish one day for half a day I could not stand it and the guy staying with had a boat and I went out and I put out snares I came back with what took me a half a day to put out and maybe an hour and a half to check with 40 something beaver some otter and some bobcats there's very few places in the world that has that type of density that's a half day's check well not really that's a two day uh, a half a day of setting and, and a couple hours of checking I pulled them I just wanted to see what it was to be honest the trapper part of me got really excited the Skinner part of me was like oh my goodness I don't want to do that again so I had to put all that up in one day at least get all the hide off everything and it, just skinning 40 beaver is something that will wear your butt out then you throw in some otter and some bobcats and stuff like that the reason I'm bringing this up if you're good on water and you can read water and you're you understand safety and stuff like that you get on the big water the reason I'm telling you about how much furs there but now I'm gonna put the caveat of what you need to really pay attention to for one the first time you get on there don't try to go out there and have it where you're checking traps all day because you may come back with 150 beaver that's not an exaggeration can you handle that many beaver most people cannot 99 percent of us cannot uh, you're not going to have the storage facilities and all that type stuff so i would regulate your time on this big water just for your own uh, ability to get sleep and have some sanity but there's a danger to the water down there that you have to understand. And if you've never been in an area like that, you're not going to believe what I'm getting ready to say. But it's true. And if you're not prepared for it and you don't plan for it, I promise you it'll be like someone took a big number 14 steel bow boot and kicked you right between the legs. It can rain three inches there and it's pretty common and if it rains there and north of there i've been going next to the river where the boat ramps are like 120 feet on an angle going down at a steep angle almost like a 45 to get to the water so where the water's at up to the high bank mark can be 40 50 60 feet very consistently 
in certain areas and you'll have low banks and everything just like a regular river but that that depth in a 24-hour period the rivers can get above those banks and depending on how much rain is happening north of there you might not see your traps for a month so I'm not saying that you shouldn't go to that much fur but you really need to be almost com obsessive compulsive when it comes to the the watching the weather and if you can befriend someone that's local that you can talk to about the weather it'll be very helpful because if you're in say uh, Wisconsin or Iowa or New York or wherever it is that you're coming from or even Tennessee and you assume that it could be a little bit worse than home you've assumed wrong so just because the fur's there guys really pay attention to the water because what will happen and and I've been down there when I wasn't doing bounty before and you go and you put a bunch of 330s and snares and footholes out and all that stuff and you're I mean you you almost can't sleep at night because all the sign you saw when you close your eyes you're seeing caster mounds and you're seeing otter tracks and you're seeing beaver slides and I mean you can't close your eyes you've looked at it so much when you close it it's like imprinted in your head and the next day you go out and the water's 40 foot above where it was the day before and you got to come back two months later and you find maybe one-tenth of your equipment just be prepared so if you're going out of state to go to these places this is where the planning phase of being a successful trapper comes from even if you have the boat even if you have all of that fur that you can catch and it say you can handle all of it I wouldn't put more than half of my equipment in the big water at any one time because what will happen is that water will come up and it will stay up and now you're sitting down there in a motel or you've rented a room somewhere or a house or, or you're staying in a camper at a park or however it is that you're living down there now you have no equipment to catch fur and there's nothing you can do but watch the water go by it'll drive you mentally insane but if you keep at least half of your equipment out so if you're going to run say uh, 150 body grips for beaver and otter keep 75 to be able to, to run roads and farms and stuff like that so if it does flood because that water goes down pretty quick but it's all going to the big water and if it's real wet up north from there, like into Arkansas or, you know, farther up in the Delta somewhere, it stays up. So even though the fur's there, really pay attention to the weather. Now, once you get uh, up on the flatter lands, and it, it, the Delta's pretty flat, once you get on that land, that water, it'll jump up and go back down pretty quick. Normally, within a day or so, you're, you're back trapping may not be able to get everything but you can get a lot of it so uh, you know really watch the weather when, when you're going down there alligators guys uh, it was a lot worse and well I'll take that back in and uh, Esquina County and Sharkey County uh, Mississippi even in the winter when there was uh, getting down in the 30s 
there would be when the sun would come out you know we'd be me and ed was bouncing around them swamps and stuff and come across eight ten twelve foot alligators i'm talking you know the bodies look like they'd have a hard time crawling through a big truck window big alligators so just just kind of keep that in mind of what it is now if you're used to trapping with a dog that is one place i'll say that you shouldn't take it because when when daisy was alive and I, I always took her everywhere i didn't take her to louisiana just because it was such a strange environment and there were so many snakes and everything i actually talked to a vet and the, the, what the vet told me was well if your dog gets hit above into the neck it's probably going to die if it gets below there it's going to be miserable but it'll probably live and the vet was a female she said but that's not your issue i'm like what do you mean it's not my issue she said your dog's going to be with you on the creek bank and in the swamps running around right and i'm like yeah and she goes so you're going to have four little feet patterned around everywhere sending off vibrations into that water she's not going to know what an alligator is So she's, she's bouncing up and down. She's barking at a snared beaver or whatever it is. And all of a sudden, you're just going to look over and your dog's going to be gone. And it's going to be alligator food. So just keep that one in mind a little bit as far as taking the dog down there with you. Because it doesn't matter how big it is. If it's a 10-foot alligator, it can be 10 of them. The alligator's going to win. The other thing about alligators, and th this is one that I never got bit um, I did catch several. I turned them loose. They're amazing animals as far as uh, how long they can live in a 330 underwater, 24 hours where they can't get to the top. I don't know how they do it, but they can do it. So he here's, if you're going down there, uh, one big lesson is if you can't see the trap and you can't see what's in the trap, you do not do what you do everywhere else in the country where you can get your hand down there and kind of like go down to your cable and or your wire or feel for a stake. Then you gently go straight down to see if you feel those jaws because it's real. It can be very uh, cloudy water down there. You don't do that down there. And here's the reason. Because if you get rain and these creeks all of a sudden get current, Alligators have this tendency, and I don't know why, but they walk on the bottom of the creek and they'll get in a beaver run and they will walk up current. So what do you have sitting there that is going to stop that from happening? Your beaver trap. Then the beaver trap is going to catch the alligator and it's going to thrash around, but it's going to be calmed down by the time you come back. Now it's sitting in a trap, it doesn't know what's going on, and you're not used to being around alligators, so you run your hand down there. Does anybody see a problem with this? Because I, I about, till I figured this out over a couple of times, I literally uh, about had a heart attack. And there was probably a little urine involved. Because you're thinking you've got a beaver. You've seen a beaver, or it could be an otter. Everybody's seen an otter in a trap. It's dead, right? You, you feel down there, you pull it up, and your brain's thinking beaver or otter. And you pull this thing up, and it's a live alligator. And trust me, your brain doesn't care if it's a three-foot alligator or a five-foot alligator. 
the primal instincts that you have inside of your head is going to come alive in a very loud and, and uh, vibrant way. And then you end up hurting yourself, even if the alligator didn't hurt you. A lesson that I learned with alligators is from a local. I was trapping on a duck impoundment, um, which we're going to get into in a minute. If you've got a really big alligator and the thing wraps itself up with your cable where it can't do that big roll thing that'll get you in trouble. Think about a cable now and you're now dealing with something that's stronger than you that can roll around. You get your hand or something caught in that. Now you're kind of like hooked to the alligator that's pretty aggravated. I'll, what I learned from them is the safest way and it, you're, it's gonna hurt your feelings. Uh, do not kill the alligator because if you get caught, uh, you're better off just going on a mass murder spree somewhere with people than killing one of them alligators out of tag and being out of uh, uh, out of state and out of season. What they did is they would cut the body grip at the corners with bolt cutters. And as long as they weren't thrashing around cutting it, the alligator didn't seem to be that really... Uh, perturbed and then eventually it would figure out that nothing's holding it and it'll it'll go about its business so i've lost some blouse down there because of that it's a, it's a it's a safer way to deal with it trust me the 30 dollars or whatever blouse costs now it is not worth uh getting caught shooting an alligator or getting caught losing a digit it'd be a cool story in a bar somewhere but it's probably not the best the other thing that i've learned when when uh Montreal Valentine uh, was explaining to me because he saw how many footholds I was using. He goes, what are you going to do when you catch a big twin foot gator in that thing? Never entered my mind. Alligator is not something I think about in Tennessee very often. Don't know. I guess same way I got a deer out the first time. Figured out as I went. Listening to him, what they did is they, they would take a rope and he was using a four-wheeler and he would put that around the head of the alligator and kind of tighten it down. And they would back the alligator or back up the four-wheeler with the rope around the thing's neck. And they would back it up to get tension on the alligator. And then the guy that was on the four-wheeler would sit there and it would be in reverse. And then whoever the lucky one was that would go take the trap off of the alligator's foot it would pop the trap off and run either left or right or the opposite direction of the alligator, just five or 10 feet. When that happened, as soon as that trap came off, the four-wheeler would, would hit the gas and pull the alligator away from the person. And then they would uh, be able to, because they were using a rope, <coughs> they would, with a, with a long machete, they'd reach over and just cut the rope off of the alligator around the head. And it could go off. Now, a smaller alligator, you know, three, four feet, you don't have to go through all that. Eight, 10-foot alligator guys, pay attention to what you're doing. So alligators is, is a definite thing that you need to think about. The other thing is snakes. If you're deathly, I mean deathly afraid of snakes, um, just be prepared about what you're going to see. Snake shot, if you're, if you're uh, nervous about snake, it's your friend. And here's why. I don't care how good of a shot you are with a pistol. If you're very, very anxious about being around a blunt tail rattlesnakes or cane break rattles, uh, blunt tail cotton mouse or cane break rattlesnakes, 
and you come up on one really quick and it starts acting aggressive, you're probably not going to hit it with a 22. What I used to carry down there was a 44 special. And it was a, a short uh, Carter Arms made the thing. Uh, they they used to be cheap. I don't think they're cheap anymore. But anything from a 38 up, you're going to have plenty of, of to do with it. This was a 44 special. But I, I, I used to, literally, literally, I would buy a case of rat shot or snake shot every time I went down there. And most of the time I was buying more before I left. Because you'll go in the mornings and for some reason, right when sun's coming up, the, the cotton mouse seemed to be very aggravated. I don't know if they hadn't had their coffee yet or whatever it is, but later in the day, they seem to be a lot more gentle to deal with. But in the morning or right at dusk, they get very active and very aggressive. So if you need to protect yourself against one of those snakes, having the little shotgun shell, or you could use something like the Judge, which you can get the 410 shells for, you may not kill the snake, but you're going to get its attention off of you when you, when you pull the, the trigger. And you don't have to be a perfect shot. But really pay attention when you're in a canoe or a boat or a P-Row or whatever it is that you're going to be down there in if you're going to be floating around them swamps. If you get under any of the limbs, because it's going to be, uh, even down there in the winter, a lot of stuff has, still has vegetation. And, and you don't, you're looking for sign and you're all focused and everything and you get too close up under that stuff and you'll, you'll hear something hit the bottom of your boat or your canoe and you'll look up and it'll be a five foot cotton mouth, big as round as your wrist. That's what a blunt tail is. That means their tails are real fat because they're really big. And then you're going to have to make a decision. Abandon ship. Now you get, now you're dealing with more snakes and alligators. Uh, how are you going to deal with the snake? Are you going to shoot the snake in the boat? Because what if you put a hole in the boat? Now you're back with the, fir the first thing, which is the alligators and the snakes. But if you can not, if you pay attention to where you're at, don't put yourself in that situation. Don't be rubbing your boat and your canoe up against brush on the side of the bank. The snakes just come out. I think they like to scare people. And they're very good at it. Because you're not expecting it. But there again, your brain goes in that primitive survival mode and you will hurt yourself even if the snake doesn't. When you get around beaver houses and beaver dams, once they come out, they're out. And I have, uh, w one of the things that uh, Cindy saw that I thought was cool that she did not think it was cool and I almost I'm, I don't think she got off the four-wheeler for the rest of the day is we're on this four-wheeler and we're going through all this CRP ground and we come up to this uh, open field and there was like a, a, a very shallow pond out through there water retention or something and like 15 feet away from the bank is this massive beaver house it was probably eight, 10 feet tall, probably 15 feet wide. And I've already been there three or four times. And, I, and I've and i seen dozens of snakes come off of this thing. So I was like, watch this. You know, not the smartest thing for a guy to do with his wife on a trip somewhere. I picked up a log and I threw it at the, the beaver house. It looked like Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom, with the snakes rolling off the side going into the water. When I turned around, because like, wasn't that cool? My wife is standing on the four-wheeler. 
So they're in the beaver houses. They get up there for sunning. Another place that they really congregate is at the beaver dams. They're in between the logs. You start moving stuff around and you're not paying attention. Uh, you're gonna be uh, you're gonna be grabbing one, or you're gonna take a chance on getting bit by one. So just pay attention to what that is. Now that probably to someone that's fearful of snakes is gonna make you think that I'm saying you shouldn't go down there, and that's not the case. You just have to understand your surroundings. You have to understand that you are not the only thing down there that is lethal. You can get in trouble with hogs. You can get in trouble with uh, the snakes, the alligators. There's bear down there. Bear, as far as I know, haven't really been an issue. But, this, but you just need to pay attention, which means move a little bit slower and learn to walk looking down. You look down, you take a few steps, you look up, see where you're going, you look back down. Now, after a while, the almost as bad part of this is you're around so many snakes in Louisiana, Mississippi, once it starts warming up, that you almost get careless. Now, one of the things from Montreal Valentine that I've learned is you can get bit by cotton mouse and they normally don't kill you. But he's been bit several times. Uh, he was, if you if I'm, you've never heard me talk about him, he was a really old state trapper that's been trapping and turtling, and that's all he did down there. Wasn't a Cajun because he's too far north, but he lived in a beaver swamp. He's been bit several times, and he showed me some pictures. And one of them, while he was standing uh, thigh deep inside of a, a swamp with some grass one wrapped around his leg and bit him on his inner thigh. And he showed me the picture of that a day and a half later. It looked like his leg got run over by a tank. There were shades of purple and blue and bright greens and yellows that was, I mean, you almost lost your lunch looking at it. That little man's leg looked like it was as big as my chest. And, you know, they took him to the hospital and they basically said, suck it up in about a week or two uh, you'll be better but you think you're going to die uh, here directly all this about the anti-venoms and all that apparently it, it's more in the movies than it is in real life especially for a cotton mouth so just really pay attention to where you're at because you are in where they live so i just wanted to say that before someone runs down there and thinks well it's only 40 degrees the snakes won't be out uh you, you maybe maybe okay one of the things that i've learned down there because it is a very wet environment and this can this can be used i don't care if you're in the swamps of maine or new york or uh, west tennessee wherever it is it, it, it's pretty much all the same but i really focused on these when i was down there now mama mostly what i was trapping for was beaver for bounty and otter for money but being a cat trapper, I could not catch cats. And you've learned down there that they've got about 6,000 possums per square 10 yards in Louisiana and Mississippi. It is freaking amazing. It really is amazing. How many possums down there? Like if you're in Maryland or New York or even Tennessee or, or 
the Midwest and you're thinking you catch a lot of possums and skunks, hell no. One of the, the most interesting conversations where I knew I was in trouble, I was down at Donnie Grafton's in um, northern Louisiana, and I went down there because I was going somewhere else and I had like 10 days. I just wanted to land trap for cats. That's all I wanted to do. So uh, he told me where some public ground are that there are definitely cats, and he's a lot older than I am, and I was a lot younger than I am now, and I went out that day, and I put out, I think it was a, I don't think it was quite a hundred sets, but it was close. Sand, the ground is real sandy. Uh, sets went in really quick. I was using drags. I'm, I'm basically just getting behind some brush next to creeks and stuff, putting in my cat sets, you know. I, I get somewhere new, your adrenaline's going, you're just hammering stuff out. May have been 80 cents. I don't really remember. It was, a, it was a high percentage. The next morning, I get up with Donnie, and as soon as I come out, I mean, it's like 4.30 in the morning. I come out, had had coffee yet, you know, nothing. My brain ain't working. And he looks at me and starts giggling. Giggling kind of like when you and some friends were in like third grade and, you know, uh, somebody did a fart joke. Kind of like just lost it giggling. And here's this older guy that's bumping 70 years old, giggling like a third grader over a fart joke. Looking at me, his shoulders were shaking. He was giggling so hard. And I'm like, what are you laughing at? And he just goes, how many sets did you get out yesterday? And I told him, and uh, and he was he just started giggling it, it, it was like that was the, the, the secondary fart of the fart joke. A real greasy one type thing. Just giggling. I'm like, what are you laughing at? And he goes, oh, nothing, nothing. I found out what he was laughing at. It jumped up to about 55, 60 degrees that night. And it started drizzling about an hour before sundown the day before. I had almost 60 possums the next day. And I saw several possums waiting in line within sight distance of the trap because I must have moved them when I was coming down the trail to get to my trap. I believe if I'd have been long lining possums in Louisiana when the temperature got warmer and it started drizzling, I believe I could have broke 150 possums if I was just going after possums they have possums. So which brings me to the next lesson, logs. I was on this one place out of Winsboro and the guy was like, you know, we got chickens, we see these bobcats every now and then. You think you could catch them? I'm like, I'll put some traps out. I was doing bounty, so it wasn't like it was a focus of mine. I put out a bunch of sets, I, pulled, I caught a bunch of possums. Next day possums, next day possums. So you can keep doing the same thing or you can try to figure out something different. So I tried to figure out something different. So what I did is on the back side of this farm, there was several almost, uh, they call them buys, but they're kind of like creeks that are intermingled with swamp. And uh, the water's not really moving unless it rains. And But there's really big timber down in what, in, uh, what they call buys. It's not really by user, it is buys. Then it's kind of like swamps. 
So you have these really big timber, you have the hurricanes come through, it's real, you know, it's a lot of water, soggy ground. A lot of these things get blown over. So what I did is I would find where one of these things had went over a, a bigger section of a creek or a bigger section between an island and an island in a swamp. And then I'm catching all these beaver. So then I would go out to the middle of these logs and I would uh, wire the beaver down and when I wired that beaver down in the middle, I would come back off of that, you know, 15, 20 feet, and I would use cable and I would take the ax because a lot of these were kind of rotten. And I would beat out a trap bed and I'd get some mud and I would kind of squish that down in there to kind of, you know, make it uh, stable. And then I would just take some leaves or grass or whatever and just kind of put on top of the log. It's very crude. I caught cats. I caught quite a few cats by doing that. Now, I did catch a few possums, but that went down to like maybe 2% of what I was doing. I uh, caught two coyotes doing that. Caught a bunch of coon doing that. Caught one otter doing that. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. But probably uh, out of Two dozen of these logs that I had set in four or five days, I think I caught 12 or 13 bobcats off of them. I mean, it was productive. For that amount of, of work, you know, if the water came up or down, didn't have the possums issue, it's very good. Over the years, I played around with that the more I went down there, and, and I really, really functioned on these logs. I learned that uh, I could snare because you know, if it was only two or three feet above the water, I could take some river cane or some, some brambles of some kind, and I could kind of you know, put a limb over the log and cut a hole for the snare, so you got the tight little hole for the bobcats, and, and I could snare them there, give them enough, they'd be in the water and they'd be drowned and, and different things like that. So I, I learned that that was very, very productive. So if you're going to Louisiana, Mississippi, and you come across logs, that are you got beaver carcasses you can still catch a bobcat on a completely rotted green purpley mess of a beaver carcass it's more of a curiosity at that point i'm sure i don't think they're going to try to eat it and you would wire that thing off you need to wire it off good uh, you can at the end of those logs uh, when i was trying to catch raccoons i would put the dog proofs at the end of the logs going up to the beaver and sure enough, that was a beaver, I mean, a raccoon catching little ordeal right there. So basically, I'm putting the beaver on the log over the water to take away a lot of this stuff. And it cut down, because when you go to Mississippi and Louisiana, depending on where you're at, you can have a lot of feral dog problems. And that really cut down on the feral dog problems. I think the only thing that I ever had to turn loose off of that was a beagle. And uh, it, it tried to get, get in the truck with me and go home with me. And uh, we, we got it back to the owner because I had a tag. But that was that. But if you just go down setting foothold traps on public ground and stuff down there, you're going to have dog issues. This kept me away from that. The other thing about logs down there that I learned is if there is a bend in a creek or a deep hole or uh, somewhere that you would stop and literally fish for crappie or bass or something like that, and there's a log where a tree is fell and some of it's in the water kind of think of a muskrat where they climb up on the logs but on a bigger scale 
you know, at least, uh, you know, 10, 12, 14, three feet across type tree. What I've learned on those logs for the otter is I could put the trap right under the water, just like you would for a muskrat. And you can look at those logs and you will see sometimes there's otter scat on there, but the, the top of it will be tore all to pieces where the otter are up there playing around all the time. If you don't see any sign on the log, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take, I wouldn't waste my time setting it. But on the ones that I did, and on bigger water, that was really cool because a lot of times on big uh, featureless type pieces of water, there's not a whole lot you can do with an otter. And this was a way that I could continually catch otter. Then if I was in a canoe or a flat bottom, which I borrowed some of those when I was down there, and I'd get deeper into these bigger swamps, I would just, as I floated by, if it looked like there was a bunch of activity on the log, I could take a, at that time I was using number five Bridger Coal Springs and uh, Duke Long Springs, and I would take two nails, just like you would for a muskrat, and I would put that below the water. And that would probably net me an extra 15 otter off going down through there, but I could do it out of the canoe so it wasn't a whole lot of energy wasted. Uh, didn't really have a nutria problem doing that what you do in some areas down there. So think about the logs when you're down there because it's just a different terrain and you need to think about how you need to do stuff like that. Um, crude snaring works better in Louisiana than I've ever seen in my life. And it could be because of my snare snobbery, I don't know, but there was some guys down there that would do about 100 counts a year in snares and they would do it in the strangest way I've ever seen. But it was a lesson that I learned down there. You don't have to be as sophisticated as we all think that you have to be. And what these two guys were doing is they would go to the fish ponds because the, the guys there are always shooting the birds that aren't supposed to be there and you have catfish die off and they're up on the bank and the turtles, you know, are up on the bank, you know, sunning themselves and stuff. So the coyotes know that there is a, a good food source and you will find coyote trails that almost look like coon trails coming out of the thickets. And what these guys did, which I would say would never work, but it was a lesson that you learn is they would take river cane, they'd get a couple of things of river cane with all of the little bamboo looking leaves on there, and they would stick them about 12 inches apart, and they would they would bow them up at the top so it almost looked like, um, like you were making an arch. And the grass that they were setting this in would only be like six, eight inches deep. So you have all, think about this, you're going to think about just setting this out on a trail in the middle of your yard, and you build this arch with the river cane, they would support their snare off of the river cane. They would stake the coyote down. They caught like 100 coyotes a year doing that. Really crude. But it was a lesson that really stuck with me. Now, if they would have tried to be more sophisticated in their snaring, could they caught more? I really don't know. Um, don't know. But, I mean, you can't argue with success. And it was very crude. Another thing when you get down there is keep your eyes open. Uh, you, you'll, you will find that there are certain parts of the Delta that for some reason, I don't know if it's an income thing or it's, a, it's too aggravating go to the dump thing or what it is, but people throw stuff off bridges like crazy, like shopping carts, whole refrigerators, stoves, shelving, 
probably a few people but there there's big junk that gets thrown in a lot of this water if you keep your eyes open and you look at that from the perspective of an otter or beaver you can have some really whiz bang sets now one of the ones in my I don't know what book it was that I, that I was showing it could have been in the year-long blitzkrieg DVD um, there was a shopping cart that someone threw off a bridge and it was all silted in. It was about 14 inches away from a high straight bank. And I couldn't figure out any way to catch an otter there. So I just stuck a 330 between the bank and the shopping cart and I caught several otter. So from that point on, because I kept my eyes open, if I would see a refrigerator or something like that that was mostly blocking down a creek, I just treat it like a log. The animals are used to it and it didn't make any difference. You know, so... If you keep your eyes open on that, you, you'll see it. Now, another thing that I noticed down there was there was a couple of places where people have had cows or pigs or something, and they had the uh, almost like the woven wire fence that you see more out west for sheep. And they would be going through there, uh, through this by to, to keep them in. Could have been for goats. I don't know what it was, but years ago. Well, because of logs and floods and different things like that, uh, some of those got broke in some very interesting places along the water. And you would see that the beaver, their, 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 uh, you know, their runs would, would go up to that fence and go to this little opening, and they were all going through this opening. Well, that, yeah, that makes sense. So you put a, a trap there, you catch beaver, 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 otter, otter, beaver, otter, otter. I mean, it's amazing. So then I started going, well, if it worked there, I'll move fences around. So then I would find old fences and stuff on people, and I would go move those around creeks that I couldn't figure out how to catch anything on, and sure enough, it started whacking stuff. So just by keeping your eye open, that got me to start using fences when, when I probably haven't done that before. Bobcats and beaver. Two things I learned about bobcats and beaver down there. And I've said this one before, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. When I was doing the bounty work and I'd have a beaver that would have rubs or, or something like that, and it wasn't worth skinning um, because of whatever reason, I would cut the tail off and cut the caster out for the bounty and to keep the caster. If I skinned them, I would skin them right there. And I would have my knives and stuff with me. And I can do that fairly quick. You're only talking about two and a half minutes. I would skin that out of a backpack right there. And then I would take the beaver carcass, because you can only eat so much beaver. And I would just throw it up on the bank next to a tree or in a thick place or something like that. And every day I'm checking beaver traps, I'd look over. The day that it was covered up, it was from a bobcat. I'd go put a trap in front of it, catch the bobcat the very next day. Super simple. So that that's where I learned that. So it was kind of like I, I, you know, over the course of a week, I'm catching you know 150 beaver. I've got 150 beaver carcasses out. 15 or 20 of them get hit by bobcats. That's 15 or 20 bobcats the very next day by setting it up. The other thing that I learned about bobcats and beaver, and probably otter, is bobcats have this tendency is when they're going down across a levee or a road or the woods and you've got beaver and otter on crossovers. 
for some reason, they go down the Beaver and Otter Trail to all the way to the water. And they do it regularly. So here's a way that I've learned to handle that down there. Because it's really, and let me tell you, you, you want to have a smile come across your face. Come up to a crossover and you see, look over to one side and you got a great big old Tom Bobcat on the crossover trail. You look down, you got an otter on one side and a beaver on the other. That's one stop. That's, that's, that'll put a smile on any trapper's face. So what I would do is do my normal beaver and otter stuff and then I would, I would simply blind set the crossover trail with a couple of traps. And I'm talking quickly and crudely. So it's pretty much like stomping out a trap bed with my boot heel, throwing a drag off or staking it down or cabling it off quick, grabbing a bunch of grass or leaves, whatever's handy, and just throw it over the trap. That was all I would do. And I would catch several bobcats a year by doing that. The other thing about otter is if you ever get a dog, you're going to see a pattern reemerge. Dogs cannot stand to not roll in otter scat. Daisy learned because I, I helped train her with Slim Jims and treats that I could pull up to one of those fish ponds, let her out. She would go around the pond and every single crossover that had otter or scat in it, she'd roll in it. I could sit in the truck and go one, two, three. Okay, I need six traps. She'd come back. She knew that she was doing that for some reason. I'd give her a Slim Jim or, or chicken liver or something. And every time I got out of the truck, she went hunting for otter scat. But what I learned from that is I could take that otter scat because she was so interested in it on her own before I started giving her treats that I could take and start collecting that otter scat and start actually putting it in, in some holes and catch coyotes and fox and cats. So that was a lesson that you might find to be helpful. And that'll work anywhere in the country. Anything I just said will work anywhere in the country on the coyotes and the cats. So that's uh, some of the lessons that I had on that. And let me check my handy dandy smartphone here. Uh, set heavy because you don't want to go to a, a beaver crossover, an otter crossover and set two traps. Not if there's any amount of sign. When Montrell would set a set and, and he caught more than anybody else until he got down in South Louisiana that I've ever heard. He would set traps in the water with a foothold or conibear. He'd set them up on the bank. He would set them uh, going up to the thing. If you can imagine, when, when he would go set up a, a simple otter crossing on a creek, He'd have a minimum of four to five traps and sometimes up to eight and 12. That seems crazy. Till you go with the man and he's catching quads in five at a time. It could be three otter and two beaver, vice versa, a bobcat, this, that, and the other. I mean, he, he, you start adding the numbers of three, four, and five up on a daily catch, it racks up pretty quick. And you've got the fur in these places and a lot of times if the right movement's going on, they're gonna pay off. So set heavy, for goodness sake, uh, when, when you're doing that. Very important. The, um, one of the last things that I want to talk about when you're going somewhere like this or anywhere else, every community 
every farming or agriculture community has one or two guys that are the boss hog. Not in money, not in uh, amount of land, not any of that, but they're, they're, they, they're the boss hog of social capital within that community. And you'll hear their name come up several times if you talk to people, which you have to do if you're going to get permission. You need to really pay attention and try to guess who the influencers are of that community. Because if you can find out who that is and get on their good side and do them a good job, you are set for life in that community because you meet a farmer somewhere you see him out in this field and you see he's got some swamps over there and you want to go trap and you pull up to him he don't know who you are you don't sound like him he knows you're, you're not from there and um, you know Louisiana Mississippi farmers are some of the friendliest in the country but you get to talking and you're wanting to, to use his land to set traps on his land and this, that, and the other. Now, you know, he, he may wish you'd catch a few beaver or whatever, but, you know, what if you catch my neighbor's dog? All this stuff's going to be going through his head. He didn't, this was not an option for him before you showed up. So now it could be good, but it could be a headache. Do I really want to deal with this? I don't know. But if you know who the influencer is, you, you, you kind of start the conversation to get it going in the right direction of you know I'm, I'm i'm trapping over on jim's and and uh jake's over there and then uh billy bob because you know you you know billy bob's got me trapping on this place and he's really tickled with what i'm doing to see billy bob is the boss hog of social capital in that community and what you'll find out if you if you find out who that is and, and they like you because you're doing them a good job when you drop billy bob's name Oh, Billy Bob's got you trapping. Oh yeah, go go right ahead. Yeah, let, let me know if I if you need any help or knowing where anything is. Totally changes the game. Because you can have 10 names when you're out of state trapping. And they kind of know each other. Yeah. But you know Billy Bob, the social capital boss hog of the area's name? The influencer, the one everybody looks up to, the one that's like E.F. Hutton when he talks, everybody listens because they respect him that much. And you're trapping on Billy Bob's. Whew. Getting permission is not going to be an issue. Now, the, the very last thing that I want to say when you're out of state, don't be afraid to talk to people. Don't be afraid to let people know that you're trapping. It's not the social negative stereotype down there that it is in a lot of parts of the country. If you don't let people know you're there, you don't know. When I would go eat every day, I would have my hip boots on and a National Trappers Association t-shirt on or my Predator Control Group t-shirt on or at that time, the first time I think it was actually Big Country's Luscious Lure t-shirt on and I'd have the FTA hat on with Fur Takers of America, you know, and I'd go in and eat just like that. Now I'm a stranger 
in these small communities, so everybody's going to notice me. They're going to figure out that there's something there with fur trapping or something. And someone will say something, and you go, yeah, I, you know, I'm down here trapping uh, for beaver. If you know anybody that's uh, got a beaver problem, but, you know, I give them my number. And you got to talk. And then when you are with a landowner, don't be afraid. You know, don't be overly anxious. Don't be, uh, you know, like a chihuahua trying to chew their ankles off or something. But let them know that you're looking for more property if you are. You know, if you know anybody else that's got, you know, good-sized property like this, it's got a bunch of water and problems, man, I'd be glad to go help them out. And, you know, I'm not going to, just like you, I'm not going to be leaving the gates open, rutting up the fields and, and, and all that type stuff. you got to be willing to ask these folks. And if you are willing, most people in Louisiana will go out of their way to help you out. And once you start getting a reputation in an area, kind of like red is over in Tunica, once you get a reputation, I've been stopped twice in Louisiana by state troopers because the judge, I guess, put an APB out on my truck because they had beaver problems. I've had farmers show up at 4.30 in the morning because they just assumed everybody's up at 4.30 in the morning drinking coffee to see if I could come help them out with beaver otter or bobcats or coyotes or something like that. Once you get that reputation going and they know that you're going to do what you say and you're going to be there when you say you're going to be there and you're not going to destroy their land and you're going to let them know what you're catching or you're going to let them know if the fence is down over here, cows are out over there or, you know, the you know just let them know that since it's been raining if you don't mind i'm going to park her up here by the road so i can walk down and not tear your field up most farmers go hey, just drive down there anyway which brings up i guess the last last thing we're going to talk about when you're in mississippi or louisiana you have to be smart you never drive into somewhere because it's dry and when you get part way back there you realize that if it rains you're stuck don't set the traps unless you're willing to walk one thing about Louisiana and Mississippi it will eat a vehicle when it gets wet it can be hard as concrete and asphalt in the middle of august when you ain't seen a drop of rain in four months you let a quarter inch rain hit that and if you're not set up for it and you're not used to dealing with gumbo and, and bottomless um, ground around swamps you're going to be in serious trouble which is going to lead you back to you could become a problem for the farmer because he's got to go get his tractor, which he will, and he'll help you out, and he'll be nice, and this, that, and the other. But when he talks to the next farmer, yeah, but man, you know, me and my wife was eating dinner, and I had to go get the tractor and drive it over there and I had to pull him out because the idiot didn't know that you couldn't drive down through the swamp like that when it was wet, and, you know, you just don't want that happening. So you got to be smart about where you're going if you're going to go to Louisiana or Mississippi. Now see, I'm just 
went over a quick list in my head that I put down on the phone so I'd have points. Those are just the things that popped in my mind. If you're looking to go out of state somewhere, go. If you want to go to Louisiana or Mississippi, go. There's a lot of fur down there, guys. Even if you don't make the, the super duper catch the first year when you're down there, one thing that will be amazing to you if you're from up north, it can be February and it can be cold in Mississippi or Louisiana. It's definitely damper. It's a different type cold. But there's a lot of those days it's going to be sunshiny and 40 degrees and you're going to think it's springtime. And there's nothing more soul exhilarating than being in the Delta and having a bluebird day and it's just a little crisp and you're in a t-shirt and the birds are everywhere and you're catching fur and then you talk to a buddy on the phone back home and they're three foot in snow and it's 15 below zero and the blizzard's coming in and everything's iced up and and you're looking around going this is like the bahamas for a trapper with fur so if you want to go go don't be afraid just go very rarely have i met anybody that's been to those two states that did not have a blast and a thousand different stories to tell about their adventures when they go there and once the money's gone and you've spent what you caught after you sell the fur, those memories and those adventures, that's part of you forever. And that, to me, is really the core of what being a trapper is. Because money comes and goes. The memories I have in those two states, some of them good, most of them awesome, some of them not good at all, I wouldn't trade them for nothing. And I've spent that money a long time ago. But that's just some of the stuff I was thinking about, guys, of uh, this, this lessons learned in Mississippi and Louisiana. Hope it helps you out. And uh, if you get a chance, make you some of that catfish oil. If you're in Wisconsin, make sure that you go by and see Hilltop with uh, the new deer and hog and bear stuff and check out his calls and everything up there. And for one, you'll know you're being rubbing shoulders with a trapper so you can be a little bit with your tribe, even if you're just with a bunch of deer hunters. Just saying. And I'll talk to y'all next week. Bye.